Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking to Programme Director for the Masters in Strength and Conditioning at St Mary's University, Dan Cleader. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So today I am delighted to welcome the Programme Director for the MSc and SNC at St Mary's University, Dan Cleader. So Dan has caused a bit of a storm on Twitter these last few months and chatting around a few issues, maybe misconceptions or misunderstandings in the world of sports science and strength and conditioning. So the first one being um, ankle range in the squat and actually coaching the squat and effective coaching of the squat. Secondly was around force, uh, force velocity, um, the force velocity relationship and the force vector theory. So that's a really interesting chat that I have with Dan, especially around that force vector theory. And third and finally around weightlifting, weightlifting derivatives and the teaching time needed to coach weightlifting correctly in all types of athletes, whether it be team sports or individual sports. So similar to the chat with Franco Impelazeri, where he challenged a lot of the um, common thoughts in the industry, really, this is definitely along the same lines with Dan. So really appreciate Dan coming on and being so honest and open with his views on some topics that can cause some um, potential arguments on Twitter between two, uh, two big guys in the industry. So thank you for tuning in, and I'm sure you'll love this episode with Dan. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Hawking Dynamics, the world's first wireless force plate testing system. So the Hawking Dynamics system is built around what coaches want, so they can test in the real world and not just in the lab. So you're able to capture reliable data on all athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor progress from their cloud-based system from anywhere in the world. So as I've mentioned, the Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, which means they're portable, and they're also trusted by teams at a number of different levels in a number of different sports. So integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring system uh, could not be easier and more affordable. So if you want to get to know a little bit more about Hawking Dynamics or actually see their plates in action, head over to the website, uh, which is hawkingdynamics.com, um, which you can, I mean, you can also schedule a demo and follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by I Measure You. So I Measure You is used by leading biomechanist researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. So I Measure You recently released IMU Step, which is a dual sensor and app for lower limb load monitoring uh, and helps practitioners optimize return to play for running based sports. So unlike GPS, AMU Step focuses on lower limb musculoskeletal load and works via two very small synchronized high frequency tibia one sensors which quantify three things. The intensity of each step an athlete takes, precise left and right lower limb asymmetry and cumulative tibial load. So IMSU is now part of Vicon and works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world. So if you want to get more information and know more about IMSU, head over to the website imsu.com or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at IMSU. So without further ado, over to the episode with Dan Cleader. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Pacey Performance Podcast. So this evening, I am delighted to welcome Programme Director for the MSc in Strength and Conditioning at St Mary's University, Dan Cleader. So welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thanks very much for having me, Rob. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Thanks for coming on. So anyone that doesn't know who you are, do you just want to give us a little bit of a background on yourself, your education, um, kind of coaching history, and then where you are now? Yeah. Um, so I guess I started off at university. I studied maths, which is very different from SNC. Um, and I kind of worked in the city as a banker for a couple of years just because I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, in the end, I realized that, yeah, strength and conditioning was what I was interested in. Um, but at that time, I didn't really know how to, how to learn how to be an SNC coach in England. Um, so I went and did a, a master's in California at Long Beach State. Uh, while I was there, I volunteered in the weight room with the college athletes. So I was there for a couple of years. Um, then I was lucky enough to get a job with the English Institute of Sport um, really early on when it was starting out. Uh, I worked for the English Institute of Sport as a strength and conditioning coach then for around about six years um, before I came to St. Mary's. Uh, to start teaching strength and conditioning. I've been doing that for about the last 10 years now, I think. So not a traditional, like you said, not a traditional background in coming through this, coming through the system. So what, what was it? Was it just a general interest of being the weight room that kind of moved you from um, being in, in the city to, uh, to do obviously the, the path you chose? I mean, I, I, I'd never intended to, go and work in the city like I, I just like like a lot of 21 year olds I just didn't know what I wanted to do and it, it sounds silly but I kind of fell into it um like it's you, you you'd be kind of like how do you fall into banking but it's kind of a logical place <laughs> to fall if you study maths um yeah yeah and, and then yeah I, I wasn't aware of this profession called SNC but then when I did become aware of it you know, like, I guess for a lot of people who are starting out in our profession, it you know the idea of being able to work in in sport uh, was very attractive to me. Mm-hmm. I was speaking to Tom Bachelor at Harlequins, head of sports science at Harlequins. I think he started out as a banker. He worked really? in the city as well. Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that was that was surprising. So yeah, two two people in a week. I, I didn't realize that. Yeah, I'm yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm sure that's graduates. what. Yeah. Oh, is he? Yeah, I'm sure he did. I'm sure that was what came up in conversation, but maybe worth a chat. So in terms of your role at St. Mary's, what where's that kind of developed from and, and to where it is now? Yeah, so I was recruited by St. Mary's when they were starting out their, the, this master's in strength and conditioning that we have. Um, and then when John... Uh, Goodwin, who started the Masters, left to go and take a job uh, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, like it was a natural progression for me to step into his shoes and, and take over running running the the program. But you don't live in the UK. Many people no, I, Many I, people won't. I guess. <laughs> yeah. No. I. I mean, I, I live in the Czech Republic now. Um, I guess. That sounds a bit weird, uh, but <laughs> RMS, uh, it can make sense. But yeah, um, RMSC is distance learning. Uh, so kind of 
our students are spread all over the world. Um, and actually now a lot of our tutors are spread all over the world. So I live in the Czech Republic. Uh, Stephen, who also teaches on our master's, lives in Belfast. And Haley, who, who's another of, of our tutors, lives in uh, Canada. Uh, so, yeah, we have uh, distance learning students and distance learning uh, tutors as well. Mm-hmm. So what is it about, I mean, obviously I spoke to John um, two episodes ago, three episodes ago, about his, obviously, the, the role that you now have. Uh, what is it that, and he was talking about how he felt about the role and what led him to go to Saudi Arabia and what led him to come back. What is it about that specific role that you enjoy? Do you get do you get much coaching time? I guess you get, you obviously get the on-sites where you've got the coaches, where you coach the coaches, but do you get much coaching time with the um, with with athletes that yourself uh, in Czech Republic? Yeah, I, I don't do very much coaching at all now. Um, I I do a little bit of weightlifting coaching. Um, I've got one weightlifter who's very good, um, who I work with. But yeah, my my coaching is pretty limited now. Um, like I, I've kind of I mean, where, where I guess I'm different to John is that like John always wanted to get away from being an academic. Uh, whereas I, yeah, I, I've kind of, uh, I feel comfortable as an academic. That's, that's the right, right place for me, I think. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So we'll just move into the, into the coaching chat on that, on that note. And something that you've uh, written, I know you've written about and something that I wanted to chat about was a few of the things that you'd mentioned on Twitter and got some debate going, which I've absolutely loved over the last few months. And that was, uh, the first thing was ankle range in the squat, which you've identified as, a, as an area that people often gravitate towards to fix issues. And you've obviously given a, um, a counterpoint to that. I just wanted to dig into that area and see, get your views on that. And then we'll probably jump off from there if that's all right. Yeah, no, um, I'm excited to talk about it. Um, uh, yeah, so... I, you know, I, I've just talked about how, how I'm now an academic, but I, I did spend a lot of time coaching uh, you know, prior, <laughs> prior to being an academic. Um, and yeah, I, something I, I feel quite strongly about is that, yeah, I, I, I don't think I've ever met an athlete who I thought was limited in the depth that they could squat to by their ankle range of motion. Um, which sounds like I'm trying to be needlessly controversial. I'm not. Um, that's, but I, I genuinely don't think I've ever met someone like that. Uh, whereas I think for most coaches, if someone struggles to get range in their squat, the first place that they'd look at is and and and, and you know blame is is the lack of range in their ankle. So. Why do people gravitate towards that? Because they think it's an easy fix, or is it just an easy thing to? I don't know. What? Why is that? Why do you think people do that? Yeah. So one reason is that philosophically, people are, are very focused on capa- uh, capacity rather than skill. Um, and then I, I think the other one, it you know, comes to okay. Well, often people aren't very good at coaching skills, uh, and so kind of. I, th- I think that uh, being good at coaching skills involves you being good at three different stages. 
but normally, or many coaches are stuck at the first stage. Okay, so stage one is, okay, you need to understand the skill that you're looking at and spot things that you don't like. And, you know, lots of coaches can do that. So if you take squatting as an example, lots of coaches will say, oh, be able to say, oh, I don't like that you're not going deep enough um, or that your back is rounding. So they can see the error. Um, but then you have two more things. Uh, one is, okay, well, you need to know why the error is occurring. And often coaches don't know why that thing is happening. They can just see something happening that they don't like. Um, and then even if you know the why of why something's happening, you still then know, have to know how to change it. So you need to have some coaching skill to be able to help the athlete change. So kind of if we take that to squatting, so we've got, okay, we're, we're looking at an error here that is, okay, we're, the person's not squatting deep enough. We can see that. Okay, the why of why that's happening, um, well, in squatting, most of the time, the why of why people aren't able to squat deep or why they have errors is because they're afraid that they're going to fall over. Um, so that's the why. Then the okay. Then you have to have some skills, which comes with experience, as to how to teach someone not to fall over. So in your in your role as program director, it's married with all the guys on site. Um, doing coaching sessions, obviously, I, I've been there, so I've kind of I've gone through this process. But how how are you trying to help coaches from various different levels of experience move towards ticking not only box one but box two and three? Yeah, so like it's a great question. Um, I mean, you you've been in this session. That you know, this session that I have in my mind, and I think that you do as well, which is, you know, a session that I do with the students on on squatting, and so kind of what we'll do in that is pair up students and then get them to coach each other, and then after students have had you know an hour or so to to work with each other, you know, we'll come in and have a look and say, okay, well, let's have a look at all of these different students will have looked at them beforehand squatting. We'll look at them after they've been coached by their peers and like, let's come to some sort of agreement as to whether we think we've made meaningful changes or not. Um, normally with a, only a little bit of browbeating from me, um, we can agree that actually most, most of the, most of these students won't have changed what they're doing in their squatting very much. Um, because, yeah, the, the students will have been able to identify, okay, I want to change this, this, and this, but then they've not really had a plan as to how to do that. Uh, and then the next part of this session, it, you know, I, I set myself up to fail because um, I say, okay, now I'm going to change everyone. Um, uh, but it hasn't failed yet, but yeah. maybe, maybe having a, maybe this is tempting fate too much. Um, but then, yeah. Then after that, I'll explain, you know, the stuff around, okay, well, the reason these people, you know, are struggling to squat is because they're afraid that they're going to fall over. Um, talk about why, you know, this balance issue is driving everything and then talk about kind of, okay, well, how can we teach people to balance? 
But in terms of the pedagogical question that you're asking, okay, so how am I trying to, you know, raise expectations? Like the, the purpose of doing that session isn't for me to make people feel bad, um, but it's more to demonstrate that actually, yeah, if you know, if if you know those second and third steps of okay, why are things happening and how do you coach them, that actually the process of coaching someone can be much more dramatic and much faster than people typically think. Like typically people will think that, um, yeah, it takes a really long time to teach people how to squat or a long time to teach people how to weightlift. And I don't think that's the case if, if you're, um, if, if you're good at coaching. Um, and then just one, one other thing to answer your question, then it's kind of like, okay, in terms of the education of how do you get, uh, you know, along uh, this pathway. So the first skill is just being able to spot, you know, things that you don't like. So that's, you know, things that, you know, coaches tend to be good at of learning technical models or, you know, having a look at lots of athletes and developing some sort of coaching eye to be able to spot errors. Um, so that's stage one. Stage two is something that's, I think, often missing in coaches' development, which is thinking hard about movement and thinking hard about, okay, well, why do things happen? Because, for instance, often things that happen in movements that you don't like happen because of something that happens earlier. And so kind of if you want to change what you're seeing that you don't like, you actually have to change something earlier in the movement um to know that you you have to have done a lot of thinking about the skill and understand how how parts of it fit together and then the third part is okay well the coaching so once you know what you want to change or or what you don't like you know what you want to change and what you need to change for that thing to disappear you then also have to you know done trial and error of all sorts of different ways of actually trying to make someone change and then you learn strategies that are particular to you which work for your coaching style in 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 teaching people how to do the things that you want them to do Mm -hmm. so just rewinding a little bit to the actual art of being in front of someone that cannot squat and in your thoughts that you've just described about it being a balance issue Take us through the process of that you would go through to actually correct that, improve that with with an athlete in front of you. Yeah, so like the 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 reason it's a, a ba- you know, it's a balance issue is that we a lot of us I think carry around in our mind our mental picture of ourselves is as is, is is as if we were viewing ourselves from the side. So we, we kind of visualize ourselves as, you know, a sagittal plane stick figure. Like w- one way to imagine what that might look like is, okay, if you stand with your feet immediately next to each other and try to move that way, then you're kind of constrained just to moving in the sagittal plane. If we were like that, then ankle range of motion would be a limiting factor. Um, and because people carry around this image of themselves that they're like that, then that constrains them from being able to move in a way that allows them to squat better. Um, So then the process of teaching someone how to squat well, then is just to help them understand, okay, you're not 
you've not just got sagittal plane only strategies. Um, you can move outside of the sagittal plane. And in particular, how you do that in squatting is that you use your hip and you use the, you know, the range of motion you have in other planes in order to solve the balance task. Um, it, it, it's quite a difficult uh, thing to talk about without visual aids. Um, and, and we're kind of, the, the, what I'm talking about here, I'm talking kind of around the problem, you know, so talking about the process without actually specifically giving the detail of, uh, of, of the squad itself. Um, but to give that detail briefly, when, when you squat, the projection of your center of mass on the base of support moves either forwards or backwards. If it moves outside of your feet, then you'll fall over. Uh, so kind of the cue that we give athletes to push their hips back is, is a good one. It helps them to start squatting well, but as you push your hips back, you move the projection of your base of support on, on your feet moves backwards. And once it gets to the back of your foot, if you go any further that way, you'll fall over. Um, and so then typically if you've cued someone to squat in that way, they'll then start bending or shifting their weight forwards by bending more from the ankle. Okay. So that's where you need ankle range of motion if you're using that strategy. And so, yes, if we're only in the sagittal plane, then we will shift our, uh, the projection of our center of mass on the floor forwards and backwards by either pushing our hips back or curling our back or leaning forwards at the ankle, whatever it is. Um, but all of these are strategies which are, are based on this assumption that we're in the sagittal plane. Um, to put that another way, like Dan John describes it as, okay, people view themselves as having just their pelvis being perched on top of their legs. When it's not, your pelvis is slung between your legs. And it's that ability to rotate your hip um, out of the sagittal plane that allows you to solve the balance problem that is squatting. Mm -hmm. So from a, from a coach's point of view, again, and again, coaching the coaches, is it purely based on experience, like you say, trial and error of just learning what works with certain problems that present themselves? Or is there ways to kind of fast track these fast track coaches to be able to deal with these problems more efficiently? I, I think coaches can be fast tracked um, because, okay, I, I've said that, okay, what you need to know is you need to have a deep understanding of the movement. Well, you can get that deep understanding of the movement by thinking about it, or, you know, someone can also come in and give you, okay, well, this happens because of this, or that happens because of that. So kind of, you know, in the session that we've been talking about, I'm going to say, I'm going to give to students, okay, well, it's all about balance, you know, and let's have a, you know, we'll have a long, you know, 15 minute conversation of, okay, how balance works in the squat. Um, and then hopefully students then can view squatting in that way so they you know that's a, a big leap in then how, how they can coach um so I, I think you know some things can be fast track but at the same time okay well the student then still has to a develop a bit of a coaching eye to be able to see the balance things and then secondly uh play around uh with giving cues and things so that they get to some things that they can say that, that work and uh, help them achieve what they want with the athlete. 
So one thing I wanted to chat about was uh, another discussion that you that you'd instigated on on Twitter, which was again very interesting, was around force and the force velocity myth. Would you mind giving us a bit of a, a background on firstly where that came from, and then based on a few of the things that you're probably going to say, I'm, I'm guessing we'll we'll jump off from there if that's all right. Yeah, no, no worries. Uh, yeah, so uh, talking about the, there's this uh, theory that's been advanced in in the last few years, which is the force vector theory, um, which has been a bugbear of mine uh, because it pretty much is based on off some very poor mechanical reasoning and also uh, kind of contradicts one of the kind of key uh, precepts of of uh, this this uh, principle of dynamic correspondence that often coaches use in, in order to evaluate if certain exercises are, are relevant to a sports skill or not. Um, and so kind of what the force vector theory is, and just as an aside, force vector theory is a really, really bad name for a theory because a force is by definition a vector. Um, so saying force vector theory doesn't mean anything. <laughs> like it, it, it's like saying sky blue theory or, or, or something. Um, but but yeah, so the, the, the idea behind this force vector theory is that some exercises or activities are more horizontal and some activities or exercises are more vertical. And that, yeah, if, 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 you're, looking, if you're looking to improve a horizontal skill, um, that that will be better improved by, by a horizontal exercise. Um, it's intuitively attractive, and I understand um, why, why it makes sense to people. Um, but it, it's, it's mechanically silly, probably. Um, and the reason for that is, okay, so... Certainly. So, what we're talking about is okay. Well, what direction are you are you are you impressing force? Okay. So, if you jump vertically, then yeah, the ground reaction force is vertical. If you are jumping as far as you can horizontally, then yeah, the ground reaction force is at an angle. Okay. And so, yes, the the director of the force vector does change. Okay. But the way that we do the way that our bodies change that vector is that we just change the orientation of our body. So if we're jumping vertically, our, our body is vertical. If we want to jump horizontally, we first of all lean our body over to the angle that we want the force at, and then we jump. So our, our strategy for, okay, directing force is, is to change the position of our body. And so what that means is that the direction of the force relative to our body, i.e. relative to us, not relative to the ground, is always pretty much the same. So I'll say that again. Like if, if, if we're, so if, if you're jumping vertically, you can think that, okay, well, the force is roughly you know, parallel to, to a line that goes from your head to your toes. When you jump horizontally, you lean your body over and the direction of the force is again roughly parallel to a line that goes from your head to your toes. It's just that now the line that goes from your head to your toes is, is leaned over. Um, so yeah, like th those two activities in terms of, of 
horizontal and vertical jumping aren't really that different in terms of the direction of the force relative to the body. So then if we're looking for, okay, well, what exercises do we want to choose to improve those skills? Well, they're going to be similar because the direction of force expression relative to ourselves is the same. Um, whereas the underneath the force vector theory, they'd say, okay, well, no, uh, because the direction of force relative to the ground is different in horizontal jumping, that means that we pick a whole different set of exercises. Um, but the problem here is that, yeah, what's important is how the direction of force expression relative to us, not the direction of force expression relative to the, the, the ground. So why why the misunderstanding? Because this is obviously filtered down way beyond, you know, peer-reviewed journals into what's happening in exercise selection in many weight rooms across the country, across the world. So why such a why such a misunderstanding for something that you've explained so quite so clearly? Um, I, I'm I'm not really sure. Um, but I I mean I. I, I mean, I, I, I get, I get that it's intuitively easy to understand. Okay, though, that's more horizontal, that's more vertical, um, and the kind of what what we have here is a, a somewhat difficult concept. That okay, well, you've got a coordinate system that is related to the ground. Okay, and that doesn't change. The y-axis, the x-axis always point in the same directions. Whereas when we're considering the direction of force relative to us as an athlete, we have another coordinate system that's embedded in us with, say, the y-axis pointing towards our head. But the, that coordinate system changes if we change the orientation of our body. And, and, and that's a bit hard to visualize and understand. Um, or it is when it's talked about in in the language of, okay, a local coordinate system or a global coordinate system. But, okay, maybe that language is difficult, but actually the concepts are the ones that coaches are familiar with because all of us as coaches will use, or most coaches will use words like anterior, posterior, superior, inferior. Well, if you think about superior, inferior, that's talking about, okay, well, superior is towards the head, inferior is towards the toes. Why do we not say more up or more down? Well, because the body can be in different positions. Um, so actually, we're very used to using superior inferior to express moving towards the head or moving towards the feet because we're comfortable with the fact that the body can change relative to the ground. Um, it's just that, okay, people don't recognize that terminology when, when, it's, you know, when we're talking about frames of reference. Um, so... One thing is, yeah, that I I, I do, you know, it, it, it has always been a common error for people to misunderstand, okay, the importance of things being um, relative, you, or the importance of considering skills relative to your body, not the ground. And then I think the other thing is just that, okay, there's some quite influential people who've thrown their weight behind, you know, the force vector theory and because of how influential they are. They, they have a lot of reach. And so that idea does propagate quite quickly 
um, within the SNC community. And it sometimes leads to the best arguments that Twitter's ever seen from a strength and condition industry. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm so glad I didn't get involved in that. <laughs> it was entertaining for everyone. So in terms of in terms of exercise selection from a practical point of view, how does where do you sit on so for instance, horizontal um, so acceleration, for example, how does this fit in with teaching acceleration, teaching top end speed, and people gravitating towards one or the other based on the arguments you've just outlined? Where does that how does it fit from a practical point of view? Yeah, like, I, I, I mean, accelerate or, or, or sprinting is another good example of, okay, a horizontal versus a vertical contrast, but it's still the same. Like, we all, we all know when we're accelerating that, well, you know, the, the, the slower you're going and the more that you're trying to accelerate, the more lean you have, you know, as you move to faster or towards top speed running and you're not accelerating, then you're more upright. Um, so again, it's a thing where it's the athlete is manipulating the orientation of their body in order to manipulate the direction of the force. Um, so, you know, the, there's an argument that the, or one in terms of the, the direction of force expression, when you're contrasting acceleration and high speed running, like it's largely the same relative to the athlete. That's not to say they're the same, you know, like clearly uh, there are differences between those skills, but it's not in, in the direction of force production. Um, like I, I referred to dynamic correspondence before. So dy dynamic correspondence is this um, theory that was popularized, popularized by SIF in, in the book Super Training. Um, and it's essentially five criteria that you can use to compare exercises to sports skills. Um, well, that framework gives you a way of comparing, okay, well, well, you know, how is acceleration different to um, high-speed running? And then, and, and then what are the implications of that for exercise selection? And there will be implications. Like I'm not arguing that, they're, that you should train the same, um, but probably, uh, you know, or certainly the more important things to look at when you're looking at the difference between training for acceleration and high-speed running is things around, okay, um, what's the current, what, what's the contraction regime? Um, what are the ranges of motion? Uh, you know, what's the, the relative speed of contraction? Um, you know, things about how the force itself is expressed and the positions that the body is in when the force is expressed, not the direction of the force relative to the ground. So we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with Dan. Just before we go any further, the first point that we chat about in part two, I should have said the force vector myth rather than the force velocity myth. So slip of the tongue, apologies, just so that's clear um, moving into part two. So moving into part two, like I said, we discuss everything around force. So force velocity and implications for velocity-based training and the force vector theory which Dan has been very vocal and um, involved in some research in that area which maybe led to a couple of arguments on Twitter so that's the first thing we chat about in this part two and then secondly in part two we discuss weightlifting teaching times the move towards derivatives 
and some common misconceptions when coaching weightlifting. So similar to kind of building on what we chatted about right at the start in terms of coaching, but building that out in, in a very specific uh, way in terms of weightlifting. So I hope you enjoy part two just as much as part one. I also want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science have exclusive access of the SAFT model, which is an algorithm developed by the US Army. And if you listen to my episode with Ian Dunican, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. So the SAFT model analyzes a number of different factors in your sleep history to predict your fatigue for the day ahead. So the alertness score indicates fatigue predicted effects on your reaction time, your lapse index, your mental output, all, all things that are obviously essential for the performance that you're gonna undertake that day. So as you can tell, it is much more than a sleep tracking device. However, it is a sleep tracking device, but not only does it track sleep, um, it considers the time you went to sleep, how well you slept, how much sleep debt you have, and even your local sunrise and sunset times. So a really impressive bit of kit is the ready band from Fatigue Science. So if you are interested in getting to know a little bit more about Fatigue Science, head over to their website, uh, fatiguesigns.com, but also follow them on Twitter at Fatigue Science. So also sponsoring today's podcast is St. Mary's University. So St. Mary's is internationally renowned as a leader in strength and conditioning education, and it was the first UK institution to offer an undergraduate degree in strength and conditioning. And its master's program, which I have been through personally and would highly recommend, was the first part-time distance learning strength and conditioning course in the UK. And it's the emphasis on the development of coaching skills and relevance of theory to practice which makes St. Mary's stand out from the other courses that are out there. So both uh, undergraduate and postgraduate courses are delivered in the purpose-built state-of-the-art performance education centre. And anyone that's been to St. Mary's will know what a fantastic uh, facility that is. And it's taught by staff that are highly experienced coaches and expert sports scientists. And one thing that students are really on the lookout for now is universities' links with uh, professional sport, and that's definitely something that St Mary's has with their links with multiple football clubs across London in Chelsea, Crystal Palace, Fulham, but also uh, London Irish in rugby and Sutton Tennis Academy. They also embed students within the Royal Ballet Company, Royal Ballet, Royal Ballet School in London. And this obviously helps students stop saying uh, necessary coaching experience to maximize their chances of getting employment post-graduation. So in addition to the strength and conditioning courses, they offer both undergraduate and postgraduate programs in physiology and sports rehab. But if you're interested in getting to know more about the course at St. Mary's, make sure you visit their website, uh, which is stmarys.ac.uk forward slash courses. Another thing on the force topic, is the force velocity myth that you'd again create a little bit of a discussion around i'd just like to get your opinion on that and then take that a little bit further and discuss the implications for velocity-based training which is obviously people are very familiar with a couple of people on the podcast who've discussed that in depth so just to get your your opinion on that would be great yeah so the Force velocity relationship is is another kind of mechanical thing that's not really well understood in SNC, I don't think, and that that does have practical implications, and that's also 
the misunderstanding comes from the fact that, yeah, one's intuition doesn't necessarily agree with the mechanics. Um, so often people are quite surprised when I say, okay, there is no fundamental relationship, direct relationship, instantaneous relationship between force and velocity within mechanics. There's an instantaneous relationship between force and acceleration, which we know it's Newton's second law that force is proportional to acceleration. There's no equivalent law for a relationship between force and velocity. So what that means is, okay, if you have a, you know, a really, really large rock and I'm pushing it really, really hard, it could still be moving really slowly. Um, similarly, I could have a really big rock and I could be pushing it with one finger really, really lightly, but it could be moving really, really fast. There's no, there's no direct relationship between the force that's on an object and the velocity it's traveling at. Whereas from Newton's second law, there is a direct relationship between acceleration and its force. If I'm pushing it really, really hard, then its acceleration will be greater. I mean, it, obviously it's mediated by its mass, but you know, all, you know, if its mass is the same. Um, so people kind of, uh, that goes against people's intuition because people tend to feel that, okay, if you're pushing something harder, it must be going faster. That's not necessarily the case. Um, where the force velocity relationships comes from is that, well, there is a relationship between force and velocity in muscle. And that's due to the structural properties of muscle. Um, and in particular that, okay, well, we know that as muscles contract, they do so by, um, forming cross bridges and then creating tension in the cross bridge. So that's a process that takes time. Okay. So if you want to have high force, then you need to have more time for cross bridges to form. So the muscle can't shorten or increase its length as fast. So in muscle, there is a direct relationship between force and velocity. Um, and it's this, uh, uh, hyperbolic relationship that we're accustomed to seeing that, okay, well, high force means low velocity, uh, low force is high velocity. Um, so yeah, there's, there is a force velocity relationship in isolated muscle. Um, but yeah, that's a, that's a really special case, uh, that's to do with the structure of muscle. And so the, the question then comes is, okay, well, yes, there is a force velocity relationship in muscle, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there's a force-velocity relationship for the body, <laughs> you know, because there's a lot more more going on in the body. Um, and so, if we kind of so so we have an open question here, which is okay. Well, it is you know, is it is there a force-velocity relationship? So it's quite common in S and C that we'll see, yeah, these you know people will plot this uh, hyperbolic curve and they'll put. Okay, the force velocity relationship, and then you know at the high force end of the curve, they'll have squatting. You know, then they'll have Olympic weightlifting somewhere near the middle, and then they'll have sprinting at the end, um, and, and assume that this force velocity relationship holds. Um, I'm not sure that's the case. Uh, like, if if you compare, say, squatting to Olympic weightlifting, well. The force if there was a force velocity relationship it would imply okay that you know 
squatting is a higher force activity than than weightlifting and I'm not sure that's true. Like uh, you get very, very high peak forces in weightlifting. Like there's obviously a difficulty in comparing things because yeah, Olympic weightlifters will be better at, you know, having high forces than powerlifters, et cetera, et cetera. So it's hard to get numbers that are comparable, but you know, my gut tells me that, yeah, if you compare squatting to weightlifting, there'll be similar forces. Yes, the the velocity is different, but the the force in them, you know, will will probably be similar. Um, same thing with sprinting. Like the the peak forces that go through the foot during sprinting are really really high. You know, like it's not a low force activity, um, but people kind of place this on as a low force high velocity activity on the force velocity curve. I, I don't think it it works. Um, so that's it, using a force velocity curve to compare exercises. I, I, I don't think there's a huge um, amount of validity in that. Um, there might be force velocity relationships when you look at individual exercises. You know, So if you're looking at uh, increasing the load in, uh, I, don't, I don't know, like a hand clean or something, then, then you, you might be able to plot a force velocity relationship. But again, it's not going to be a hyperbolic curve that looks like the relationship that you find in muscle. Um, I can't quite remember, but I think when I try to do this, uh, you know, you get more of a linear relationship where you, like it doesn't approach zero velocity, like, like the, the, the relationship in muscle would suggest. So in, pra- in practical terms and from, from coaches, practicing again weight rooms around the country around the world does this is this having a negative is this is this belief having a negative impact on what goes on day-to-day practice or is just this a theoretical misunderstanding yeah i i mean i so it's another great question like I mean, if if we're taking the example of the force vector theory that we were talking about before, then yes, I think it's something that has a negative impact on practice. Um, I think when we're talking about force velocity relationship, um, it's actually a fairly useful model to describe something that that coaches are trying to do. Um, And yeah, there's an argument that, okay, well, the terminology is wrong, uh, but, you know, it still kind of works. And, and I have some I have some sympathy for that. Um, I, I I do. I mean, I'm I'm not a mechanics Nazi, um, <laughs> but I do I do um, feel that uh, that yeah, there's there's some there's some greater insight that can be had in, in terms of okay, getting the mechanics more right. Um, you know, so yeah, if you know, if if you're in. So kind of like what, what we're probably what coaches are probably using the force velocity curve to describe is okay, maybe something like a load velocity curve. So that's load is different to force. So yeah, you know, if if you've got more load, then people tend to uh yeah, you, you know, like you, you might be using more load in the back squat and thus you're moving slower. Whereas in, you know, Olympic weightlifting, you're losing less load and moving faster. So we're getting closer to that force velocity relationship. Um but I, I do think that kind of uh, there's more insight into programming. Yeah, if you're if you're thinking about again thinking about a, a deeper level. Okay, well, 
you know, what are the characteristics of the force that we're interested in? Um, like, and thinking about, okay, am I training rate of force development here? Am I training the contraction speed? Um, the, these types of consideration, I think, are more useful than, you know, a, a very crude model of, okay, well, you know, if I've got a bit more load on my back, I can't move as fast. So on the, on the back of that, what is the implications for something that's, again, going on in weight rooms across the country, across the world, and obviously there's technology being sold on the back of this, and that's uh, velocity-based training. Where does that argument fit with that practice? Yeah, so I, I, I see velocity-based training two ways, um, actually. Um, one way is actually that it gives us a measure of something that we're very interested in. Um, but not the measure that people think. Um, so that argument is, okay, well, velocity-based training is based on the idea of, okay, well, let's reach the highest velocity that we can. And the thing that when we're looking at changes in velocity, what's important is the amount of impulse that we accrue. So that's kind of like how much force over how much time. And impulse is in many, many sports skills, absolutely the most interesting variable. Um, not that it's talked about very much. So actually, if you're, if you're tracking someone's velocity, then you are implicitly tracking the amount of impulse that they're, they're uh, creating. And, 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 and that's everything. Um, so from that point of view, it, it is a it is a very valid thing to be tracking. Um, however, uh, practically, I think that when people use velocity-based training, all they're really doing is trying to kind of get an idea of, okay, well, how close is this athlete to, to their max uh, or how fatigued are they? Um, and I do think that, uh, you know, those are things that an experienced coach can do with their eye um and so uh yeah i think you know often velocity based training is, is something that uh substitutes for you know or, or, can, or can be a helpful tool for a, a less experienced coach in telling them something that maybe a more experienced coach can can see um then i i guess my, my only other thing on it is you know going back the other way again is that yeah, athletes all like it. Um, so, so kind of, you know, for me, the first reason that I would use it, if I used it, um, would be mainly just because it makes athletes feel like they're being cared for, um, and and they like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, don't we all? Um, one thing that I wanted to touch on before I let you go, and something that we've you've you've mentioned a little bit already, and that's that's weightlifting, and one of the common reasons why people don't. Uh, teach their athletes where athletes weightlifting is a teaching time so what's your argument against that and towards using weightlifting with your athletes if there is indeed an argument there what's your thoughts on that yeah i mean it's another topic that's close to my heart uh so thank you for asking <laughs> um like I, I, and again i i i should say i'm, I'm not a weightlifting above everything nazi um, although, you know, often I might come across that way. Um, I, I do recognize that weightlifting is just a tool. It's a nice tool, but, you know, it's not the be-all and end-all. 
Um, however, yeah, I, I think that the reasons that people normally give for not using weightlifting in their program, uh, when they come out of their mouths, to me, it just sounds like they're saying, I don't know how to teach weightlifting. Um, because, yeah, by and large, the the main argument that people will give for not using weightlifting in their program is that it takes too long to learn. Um, and, and I just don't think that's the case if you can teach weightlifting. Um, so, yeah, I, and I think people's assumption is that, again, that... Uh, that if you want to teach an athlete to be able to weightlift, that it's going to take hours and hours and hours of, of development time. That's not how I see it. It's five minutes. And within five minutes, an athlete can be doing an activity that has training benefit for them um, if, if you can coach it. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to going back to the coaching the coaches, what are the common coaching errors slash misunderstandings that you see from them or you've seen from them many years of um on sites with numerous coaches on the platforms at St Mary's yeah so I mean I I think that the main thing that holds people back is and I don't know why it's been lost um but is that you know weightlifting is jumping holding a weight in your hands um, and people don't seem to characterize that way or, or, or it's more rare to hear people talking about weightlifting that way. Um, and even when people do recognize that weightlifting is jumping with weight in their hands, they don't coach it that way. Um, so kind of, you know, like it, it's not an app, it's not meant to be, when I say that it's not meant to be, a, you know, just a, a, a nice metaphor or something. That's really how I, how I feel it. Like you jump holding the weight and then you throw the weight in the air. It's a ballistic movement. Um, whereas most people have in their mind that it's a pull. And because they have in their mind that it's a pull, you know, like they see, you know, they're more towards a deadlift than a, than a vertical jump. Um, and, and that is, is probably drives a lot of the poor coaching that you'll see of weightlifting, I think. So if that, if that's, that frame is changed... How would that? How's that differ from what you see going on to what should be going on in terms of the coaching cues or just overall view of of that of coaching that movement? Yeah, I mean, I I think that people, you know, overcomplicate it a lot um, because. Yeah, I, I think, you know, if, if, if you hold a bar- barbell in your hands and you jump a few times with it, you'll feel that the barbell starts want, starts to want to lift on its own, you know, and then it's a short step to go from, okay, well, the bar's kind of traveling up anyway to, okay, I'll jump a bit harder and then catch it. Um, whereas kind of when people are teaching every aspect of weightlifting and teaching it as a pull, you know, you'll see people, okay, you know, doing – you know, jump shrugs, for example, or, you know, I like, which, which I think is a terrible development exercise because it kind of brings your focus to kind of the end part of the movement that you really don't want much focus on anyway, because most of the work's done um, and takes it away from jumping and kind of when people drill, kind of get your knees back, you know, get your knees forward, you know, they make a movement that's ballistic really really slow mechanical 
Um, and so again, like you know, Dan, Dan John says, okay, you can't think yourself through a ballistic movement, um, and and that's so right. And maybe an easy way to understand that is, okay, if you were trying to learn how to throw a tennis ball really, really hard, like you know that you just got to throw it and then try and feel what happened uh, and then adjust it on the next throw. Um, weightlifting's the same. Like you've got you've got to just jump uh, and then, you know, get some feedback and then change a little bit. You Like you, you can't think through it. And yeah, I just think people are overcomplicate uh, and don't appreciate the ballistic nature of the movement. Mm-hmm. So what, what's your view on coaches moving away from full lifts towards derivatives and even alternatives, trap bar jumps, etc. Yeah, I, I mean, I I wouldn't say, or it wouldn't be my perception that, co- that there's a move away particularly because, uh, but because I think that, you know, coaches have always used some derivatives I think there's a move towards some different derivatives. Um, so kind of like if you say, okay, hang cleans, hang snatches, clean pulls, clean sna- clean, uh, snatch pulls, like those are derivatives that have been staples of S&C for a long time. Um, I think where the move is, is into more kind of like, you know, short range or, or not short range, but more into pulls without catches and, and things like that. Um, I, th- I think that's a movement. Um, personally, uh, I normally feel that most of the time when you see people doing those types of derivatives, they lose some of the ballistic character of the movement. Um, that's a generalization. Like I, I've seen kind of um, some video of Tim Sukumel's athletes doing jump shrugs where like it certainly retains a ballistic character to it. Um, but I, I still, I still don't think it's, you know, as ballistic. Um, so I think kind of, yeah, moves towards, you know, pulls kind of, you know, like, like, like they're, they're all just tools, but they, they just take the emphasis away from what's interesting and useful in weightlifting, which is that it's ballistic. Um, with regards to kind of loaded jumps and things, I, I, again, I I don't so much see it as a change, or or it's not a. I, I there is, there is a change, but it's possibly just in the way that people are applying load, you know. Whereas before, people would jump with a bar on their back or holding some dumbbells. Now, everywhere has a trap bar, um, so so they use that instead. Um, I, I do think that the, you know, the character of a loaded jump is different to the character of, of an Olympic lift. Um, and so for me, it's not an either or it's a both. Um, yeah. And, and I think that if you are feeling that you can substitute out an Olympic lift by using a loaded jump, you're missing something like, you, you know, like both of those stimuluses are interesting when they do different things. Mm-hmm. Superb. Well, um, conscious of time and I've kept you way past the the promised 11 o'clock but one thing I wanted to one thing I wanted to to get in there was um before I let you go was your book that you brought out what was it 
nine months ago, six months ago? Is that me just losing track of time? I think about six. Six months ago? Yeah, I think about six months ago, yeah. So firstly, where did that come from? And secondly, where can people have a little look and get it if they're interested? Well, thank you for asking. It's all right. Uh, <laughs> uh, where it came from, I think, is just, um, yeah, I've just been thinking about this stuff for quite a long time uh, and done quite a lot of, uh, you know, talking about my ideas and things in my teaching. So it was kind of uh, just trying to get all of that down on paper in, in one place in, or as best as I could. Um if people are interested in it, uh, then yeah, you can. It's available on Amazon, on all of the Amazon stores. So depending what region you are, um, and you can get it as a paperback or as a Kindle version. And what's it called, Dan? Uh, it's called. Sorry, oh. I, um, it's called the the Little Black Book of Trading Wisdom. And you were hinting at a, a second book on Twitter the other day. Is that in the pipeline, or is that just thoughts at this at the moment? I think I think it's uh, I, I think it's I think it would be fair to say it's in the pipeline. I, I'm writing a, a different book at the moment, um, which is a bit different. Uh, so I wouldn't. So the book I'm writing at the moment is a, is a philosophy of science. Um, so it's a bit of a departure. Um, but then the conversations that we were having on Twitter was all around these kind of force things, and there's quite a few topics where kind of. Yeah, I mean, as we've talked about today, where force isn't well understood, but where it's not just kind of a matter of semantics or terminology, but where there are real implications for training. Um, so, yeah, I'd, I'd asked on Twitter if, if people would be interested in a book that kind of explored that. And um, people did seem to be interested. So, um, yeah, I, I, I do have it on my list of things to do, hopefully uh, in the new year. Book number three on its way. Yeah, <laughs> and so we've, we've chatted about Twitter a couple of times. Where can people get you on Twitter? Do you know your, what's your Twitter handle, Dan? Yeah, it's uh, Doctor underscore uh, sorry Doctor underscore Jump underscore UK. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for your time, Dan. Really appreciate you coming on. No, thank you. And staying up a little bit later and having a chat. <laughs> no, no, it was great. Thank you, Rob. Thanks a lot, Dan. Speak to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Thanks for tuning in to episode 234 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So really appreciate Dan's time and coming on and having a really honest and open chat about some of the common misconceptions and misunderstandings across our industry. Also, big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, to I Measure You, Fatigue Science, and of course, St. Mary's University for sponsoring this episode today. So keep pressing subscribe on your podcast players and each Thursday morning UK time, a new podcast will appear on your phone, ready to listen. So thank you very much for your support, and I will chat to you next week.